Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN Certification, offering professional nursing certifications in over a dozen specialties and subspecialties, with information available at aacn.org forward slash credentials. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barton. This is Connie Barden, and I'm thrilled to be here today to talk to Alyssa Bolt. Alyssa, welcome. Thanks for carving out some time to chat today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Alyssa is a staff nurse at Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, and you're sometimes relief charge nurse as well. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Alyssa, where you went to school, how you landed where you are, and how you got started on your nursing journey? Um, so it kind of started back in high school. I um, got convinced by a friend to join search and rescue. And I went through all the training over in Skagit County, did all the up the mountain, down the mountain, rain, snow, but I loved the medical training we got. And so that started me down the path of looking for nursing schools. At that point, I wasn't even certain that I wanted to be a nurse yet. I figured I'd just kind of drop in and see, you know, kind of what it was all about, see if I liked it. So I ended up at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington and absolutely loved their style of educating people. They really focus on critical thinking. That was really wonderful. Um, with that, I had opportunity to go ahead and do my clinical practicum on the cardiac floor at Sacred Heart Medical Center and um, got to know a lot of the culture and a lot of the people and ended up deciding I would apply there and ended up uh, actually being hired on Nine North, which is a cardiac medical unit. I thought it was gonna be temporary. <laughs> I thought I was going to end up back on the west side of the state um, where my family is, but ended up falling in love with Spokane and ended up meeting my husband here and setting down roots. So here I am. Well, falling in love with Spokane and with a guy, that'll kind of keep you in one place. So <laughs> good for you. And you're a Zags person. I'm a college football fan and the Zags are my number two basketball team right behind <laughs> the UNC Tar Heels. So we have something in common. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, let me ask you, um, I know a little bit about the unit that you're working on, and it seems like, especially in the last couple of years, that unit has sort of changed its personality from one thing to the other. You want to tell us a little bit about the changes you all have been through there in the last, what, two, three years? Uh, it's actually been the work of about nine or 10 years. <laughs> one of the things we kind of joke about on our unit is that we're the grab bag unit. We pretty much see everything. We started out as outpatient procedure recovery. And so we had very quick turnaround rates with folks and we'd have, you know, heart caths and post-endo procedures where people just needed a few more hours to recover. And then the hospital started deciding that they wanted to open up more inpatient beds. And so we became more and more inpatient as time went on. Um, and then over the course of a year, we became fully inpatient and ended up being renamed cardiac medical. We're essentially a step-down unit but we don't really have that as an official title. We take very ill patients. Most of them are, you know, just kind of hovering on that cusp between needing the floor care that we can provide and ICU level care. I've had the opportunity to learn a lot. With that transition though, the cost was that we didn't really have much of an identity as a unit. We have an excellent team. I love my coworkers. Um, the culture is one of openness and questioning and collaboration. And that's what I absolutely love about the unit, but it's a challenging place to work because of the patient population. And so there was an opportunity that came up a few years ago, actually about a year before we hit COVID, 
where um, they decided they were going to turn us into a sepsis specialty unit because there'd been a lot of research that specializing a unit in sepsis um, improved outcomes in that department. And so they started training us within a course of about a year, we kind of became fully formed as a sepsis unit and gained an identity, which was really, really awesome. But then <laughs> as it happened everywhere, COVID hit. And so um, that identity, because we were sepsis, they decided that we would be best suited to take those very ill, but non-ICU level care COVID patients. And so we went from being a sepsis unit with this identity to being thrust into this situation where we had this unknown disease at the time where we were all muddling through it together, trying to figure out how to best serve this patient population. We have since become experts in sepsis. We've become experts in COVID. And so here we are. That is a mind-blowing journey. And so many things intrigue me about that. Now, you know, what we're talking about, you are a leader on this unit. We're going to talk about your roles and that kind of thing in a minute. But a lot of our theme today is using the gifts that you have to lead. And I'm intrigued by this thing that you said early on, we didn't have an identity as a unit. And then when it sort of got a bit more specialized with the sepsis and so forth, it gave us an identity. Why do you think that's important to the unit? Like, did you note some shifts during that evolution of having more of an identity, would you say? I think everyone thrives when they have a story. And stories are so important to us as human beings. And when a story is disjointed, when we aren't as connected because things are so all over the place, I think that that makes it difficult for us to connect the dots. At least that's my experience. And so when we were given this identity as a sepsis unit and we all have that shared story, I think that helps us connect more with one another and we learn from each other. I mean, we dove deep into sepsis and all of us have a different perspective on our response to that condition. And so we all bring different skills to the table and I love collaborating. So when we have that team where everyone knows their piece of the puzzle and it all interlocks together, that's an amazing experience when you can directly affect a patient outcome in a positive way and then add that to your unit story. Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it sounds like it kind of helped to give people a common goal, common purpose, where we're going to dig in, like you said, and learn all the latest uh, evidence-based way to handle sepsis and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really a journey. Now I understand you're pretty active on your unit council. Love that because this is how unit councils are really dynamic when they're led by staff nurses, frontline nurses who do the care. What inspired you to uh, get involved with the unit council? I actually was somewhat voluntold into the position. The gal who ran it um, went on maternity leave and I was just quote unquote, a staff nurse on the UBC at that point because my uh, then manager had said, hey, this might interest you. I think at that point that I was kind of a go-getter and so, cause she had precepted me. And so when she went on maternity leave, I took over as interim chair. And then she decided, well, I think I'm just gonna step back altogether. So Alyssa, this is yours now. <laughs> so that's how that started. Um, and I'm the type of person, I don't like to, uh, to walk away from things. <laughs> Sometimes when it's in my best interest even. And so, so I stuck with it. The UBC at that point, 
was a few, a few people. Um, and it was, you know how they, you get situations where it's all the same faces kind of doing all of the things that was kind of the situation with the UBC. There wasn't really a good, uh, foundation in place. And so that was something that I really had to journey through. I was a green nurse at this point. I was only a couple of years out of school. And wow. So I had to kind of muddle through this whole idea of how do I lead a group, empower people, all of these words, like this isn't the, these aren't the words I applied at the time. It was more like, how do I get people involved? Like, how do I get people to help me? (laughs) We were able to actually, with the help of some amazing team members, um, get a foundation in place. And it took about four or five years, but we were able to restructure it and get it so that it would, it would have a longevity to it so that I could actually step away from the role as co-chair and step back and let another staff nurse step into that role we ended up doing a thing where we had two co-chairs. One is the mentor, one is the mentee. We would have the mentor work with the second co-chair and then the second co-chair would step into that role of mentor when the mentor stepped back. So yeah, so now I'm actually uh, stepped back from that role and COVID kind of made everything change again. And so there's probably going to have to be some more work done to get it back up and running since all of our meetings, in-person meetings had kind of stalled and Although I will say they didn't stall for a long time because the co-chair I had mentored uh, ran it until she left the unit just recently to graduate to ICU. So, <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. That is amazing. You should write a primer about how to take a unit council and turn it into something that is really incredible. You've just done incredible things. I mean, not just starting from being voluntold and not being willing to step away, but then putting in this mentoring relationship so that nobody has to handle it on their own. Mm -hmm. Co-chairs is really, really brilliant. I love that. Let me ask you, when you worked with a group like that, as you said, you just sort of started and didn't really know all the fancy terms about it, but I imagine you had to sort of, and probably still do have to kind of watch the group and everybody brings different things to the party, different strengths, different weaknesses. You have your own strengths and weaknesses. Any pointers for others about when you're working with a group, how do you tap into what people are good at, you know, to make this well-heeled, strong team? Like it sure sounds like you've got there now. I don't know that I consciously was, I guess, recording that part during my time as the unit-based council chair. When I look back at hindsight at that experience, um, I'm looking at that as a foundational experience that I, I absorbed a lot of information um, about group dynamics and my own strengths and weaknesses and other strengths and weaknesses, but never really ascribed any like actual literature, I guess, to that. Um, it was more of a subconscious thing. The role I have now, I'm now our co-chair of our, our local bargaining unit um, for our union. That's the role where I feel I've actually started to consciously apply all of those things you just mentioned. And the UBC role was really honestly just me muddling through trial and error, trying to figure it out. And I had a lot of help. That I say would be the biggest takeaway I had from that experience was you can't do it by yourself. I mean, every human has strengths and weaknesses and, and being able to identify your own strengths and weaknesses and those and others. I mean, everyone, like I said earlier, it's all about a puzzle. And I love the puzzle of trying to find those interlocking pieces to make a, a group be more than the sum of its parts. And that is what I'm really aspiring to try to do with the group I'm working with now. I have an amazing team of people I'm working with. They all have amazing strengths and I have some significant weaknesses and those folks have the strengths to fit into where those holes are for me. 
So it's amazing because I love being able to say, Hey, let's do a thing and then trust the group. And then they just run with it. And that's such a cool experience to watch because you suddenly don't feel like you're by yourself. You don't feel responsible for a hundred percent of it anymore. Well, that is the beauty of collaboration, right? Not any yes. single individual has to shoulder the burden themselves and they can't, you know, it's, no. it's a one-sided story if one person attempts to do something like that. Yeah, boy, you are a leader extraordinaire. If you reflect back, I know you're doing all kinds of leadership things now, reflect back to the unit council, which I think most people have nowadays. Did you ever envision yourself as a leader in doing something like this? Or is it more like the path just sort of took you there? The path took me there. I never looked at myself as that kind of a leader. I always looked at myself as someone who liked to be faded into the background and I like to quietly excel at things. I've never really liked to take an obvious leadership and a formal leadership title. Um, it, it's always really scared me. And I've always felt very ill-equipped for it. I mean, one of my weaknesses, I definitely can recognize that there are some people that are really amazing at exhortation, inspiring others to be the best they can be. And I've never really looked at that as my strength. And so I've always for a long time operated with this, I think now false assumption that you have to have that skill going out the gate in order to be a good leader. I'm realizing, I think that there's different types of leadership. I've realized I'm gifted at administration. And I think that what we keep referring back to this puzzle piece, I just love puzzles and I love putting things together. And I may not be good at inspiring people to go in the path that I may intend, but I do love seeing folks realize what path they want to do. And then everyone maybe starts to work together towards a common goal and valuing the differences people have and, and taking the strengths out of everyone's opinion. That's fun for me. Well, I got news for you. You are an inspiring leader. I'm getting inspired just listening to you tell your story. Oh. So, no kidding. It really is just interesting. Um, I think you might call yourself an accidental leader, but um, yeah, definitely <laughs> inspiring just hearing your story. When you look at some of the things you've been able to lead with any of the groups, does anything rise to the services? One or two things that you're particularly proud of that your groups were able to accomplish? So one of the struggles we had as a UBC for a really long time is every year we, we attend a staffing committee where we present to the group of management and local unit staff RNs what our needs on our unit are and how we feel our staffing levels are in terms of safety and um, how we feel on the unit. So for years, we'd recognize that our unit with the acuity of patients that we had, the staffing ratios were just, they were very challenging. The initial staffing committee I ever attended as our UBC chair, because that's kind of one of the responsibilities, I came and just basically kind of explained anecdotally to them what our situation was. and. There was a lot of head nodding and, and listening and, and then nothing really ever occurred. Nothing changed. Our staffing ratios remained the same. And so uh, for several years, this was the pattern. But every year we came back with a different tactic of, okay, how can we convince this group of people that we need more staff in order to affect our patient outcomes positively and also affect staffing outcomes because everyone was going home exhausted. People were frustrated. So we ended up pulling data, fall data. Um, I think we ended up pulling um, CAUTI and CLABC data, central line infections, et cetera, and really trying to make data our drive for pushing our staffing levels. And it's still really no changes occurred. The incident that finally pushed 
our management to affect our staffing levels was when we became a sepsis unit. Our manager was an amazing advocate for us, um, really dug into other units that were sepsis units, sepsis telemetry units, and coupled with her and our UBC, we were able to convince management that we needed to revamp our staffing matrix. And the UBC had an active role in going through that, that chart and determining how many nurses each shift got. And it was a very collaborative effort. Um, every team member had a hand in it. We made a case to management and our staffing matrix was accepted. And it was just in time because that was about when COVID hit. And had that not occurred, it would have been a factor of times worse for us as staff members to be able to take care of that incredibly challenging patient population. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking a lot about speaking up. And to the critical issue that we're hearing from every nurse in the United States, it seems like today, is this thing of staffing. And so I want to talk a little bit about speaking up. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be really intimidating. Um, to speak up. So you have the microphone now and you're talking to other people. What lessons learned or advice do you have for people who feel like, well, I want to say something, but I'm scared. Um, you know, the pros and cons of that. What do you do when your voice is shaking, but you feel like you ought to speak up? Any uh, wisdom from that? I think knowing when to speak up is the first step. I think we all get a feeling when we need to. It can be frustration. That can be the first sign, I think. Being afraid to come to work, that can be a sign. That malaise feeling that something's just not right. I think some folks, like for me, justice is one of my big focuses. I get mm -hmm. frustrated when I feel like the situation that I'm looking at doesn't feel like there's justice. So I've recognized that when that happens, I need to ask myself why I feel that way. Um, and I think that we talk a lot in nursing school and we talk a lot in, um, you know, having a career as a nurse that patient safety is so important. And when you feel your patients aren't safe, or if you feel that the care you're providing could be safer, that's a good indication and reason to speak up. We all have incredible self-sacrificial qualities as nurses. It's one of our greatest strengths, and it's also one of our greatest weaknesses. It can be scary to speak up because if you're speaking up about yourself and you're just looking at it from that viewpoint, it can feel selfish to us, but it's not, it's not selfish. It's actually so important. And so to foster that culture of patient safety and patient advocacy, I think that's the biggest reframe that a lot of us have had to have happen in our minds move away from, it's not complaining, it's not being selfish, it's actually being an advocate for the very people that we're there to serve. Very interesting, uh, the journey of speaking up from anecdotal to data to safety mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, but it can be scary, absolutely. Yes. I think the biggest challenge that I've kind of run up against, at least in the last two years, I think with COVID occurring, there was so many opportunities that we've all had to start speaking up. And there's been a lot of amazing leaders who have stepped into the role of leader to say, this cannot stay the way it is. This has to change. This is what we've been saying in the background for a decade with staffing, with you know the way that our hospitals are run, where we run right at that edge of capacity. 
because that's the business model aspect of it. We get paid for what we do to people, not what we do for people. And I think people are awakening. People are realizing this. And it's going to take an amazing village of people to step up and say, we have to change this. There just has to be this bi-level approach. It has to come from the bottom up, but it can't just come from the bottom up. It has to come from both sides, top down too. And the more people we can get on the bottom, maybe the more engagement there can be on the top. How do we make change? And how do we do this in a way that can create change? How are we respectful and collaborative and data-based and really get that we're all in this together? Although some days absolutely doesn't feel like it. We have to acknowledge that. I think what you see, it sounds like from the changes you've made is that respectful uh, evidence-based negotiation and collaboration is what really makes a difference in the end. There's that quote about, being willing to speak, even if your voice shakes, which is what you're talking about. Speaking of creating change, boy, that's a hard thing to do. What have you noticed? I think what I'm hearing is you've got to have sort of this, I hate this hierarchical thing, but like the top down or the bottom up, like everyone needs to be involved, it sounds like, for change to occur and change to stick. Any wisdom around that from your experience? You know, I think that's one I'm still learning. I mean, I think that's the, the everlasting question is how do you foster engagement and especially how do you foster that type of engagement in a group of people that has been working so hard and so diligently for so long and everyone has a different experience and a lot of those experiences the common theme I hear is people are exhausted so how do you reinvigorate a group of people and I'm still trying to figure that one out it's a really challenging thing one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last few years is I can't change what others do or force others to do what I think is right. All I can control is myself. If I make the choice in my sphere, that little sphere that, you know, outlines my body in a shadow, the exact shadow of me, maybe other people will want to follow that example. If it's an example that they feel is worthy. And so I want to focus on that integrity and accountability and authenticity. I want my life to be an example to others. And even if it's only the people I know around me, that's okay. I don't need to be on a billboard or anything like that. I just, I just want to affect my sphere and maybe there'll be ripples out from that. I think you're making a beautiful Point. What I hear you saying is you're making influence. So you don't, who cares? You don't have an official leader title on your name badge. You do in your, in your bargaining unit and your unit council and that kind of thing. But you are having influence that is really rocking the world because of how you're leading. But whether you intend to be a leader or not, you know, you are, you have gifts as a leader and um, just making big change. It, it's incredible. Do you think certain people have gifts? As leaders, and if so, do you think there's some that are more important than others? Like, what do you see in influential leaders? I think everyone is important. I think that regardless of if we have what would be a considered textbook leadership skill or not, everyone has the capacity to learn new things, and everyone has an expertise somewhere. I love Jonathan Haidt. He's an author. 
one of the books is called The Righteous-Minded. He talks a lot about how we are 90% chimp and 10% bee. Is that bee like B-E-E? Yes, like the buzz bee. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yep, okay. yep. And he talks a lot about how when we get together with a group of people, no matter how large or small, and we get on a resonance with them, there is this transcendent thing that happens where you feel connected to everyone. And even if you don't have that quote unquote leadership skill, if you can surround yourself with people that fill in those holes, like I said, greater than the sum of its parts, things will hopefully move. As our world continues to change and become more and more challenging, especially to speak up, it's become very challenging to speak out without fear of some sort of social effect upon you. I think we're gonna see a lot of people feel called to step up into roles that they may not have wanted to take in the past because I think people are maybe gonna realize Others may not do it for them. They may have to do it themselves. And that's kind of what I ended up realizing these last few months when I stepped into my role as co-chair of the bargaining unit. I was realizing that there are gifts that I have and I don't want to waste them. I don't want to be selfish with them. And my gifts may be narrow. I mean, I'm good at taking notes. I'm good at keeping track of things. Like, but that that can be, I think, be enough as long as you recognize that your weaknesses can be filled by other people and you surround yourself with the people that you respect and trust who you are very clear with them. If I'm doing something wrong, poke me because I want to do the best that we all can do as a team and function as this, this amazing unit, this ship of people that's all rowing in one direction. Sure. Absolutely. I'm inspired. I'm enrolled. I I would get on the boat and on the ship with you and the chimps and the bees and everything else. <laughs> it's going to be a loud boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. We have to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but I want to ask you something on a bit of a positive note. Where do you get your joy, whether it's joy in nursing or joy in life? What brings you joy, Alyssa? I had to think about this one a little bit too. <laughs> I mean, the biggest thing is I love the people around me, my friends, my family. Um, I have an amazing group of people who I love and whom I believe wholeheartedly love me in return. I mean, without that, I don't think I would be able to go through the things that we've all gone through as a profession because it's kept me centered. And so there's a joy in that. And there's a joy in, I know this sounds really weird, but there's a joy in meeting adversity and trying to meet it head on. And I've learned that as well. Um, If you look at adversity as a negative thing, it feels negative. And it can feel really hard. And trust me, there have been days where I've cried myself to sleep and, you know, I felt defeated and I've learned that that will pass. I don't know. It's like Gandalf said, I was thinking about this quote this morning when he's talking to Frodo and Frodo's asked, why is this happening to me? Like, I wish this had never happened. And I had to write the quote down because it's just so powerful. Um, Gandalf says, so do I, but so who all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There's a joy for me in that. But then of course, I also love, I love being outdoors and I love running and I love just getting in a rhythm. And the simple things for me are also joyful. Cooking and what soothes me and comforts me. (laughs) Right. And hopefully it's not the day where I eat too much food. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we all have those days. <laughs> Listen, Alyssa, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk. And I hear so much leadership in who you are. You talk about integrity, accountability, authenticity, the importance of relationships and people keeping each other centered, acknowledging adversity, and, and sometimes, as you said, finding the challenge and the joy in conquering that adversity. But I want to wrap up and say the take home for me is we all have gifts. Don't be selfish with your gifts. Yes. So you have been so unselfish in talking with us and sharing your story. Alyssa Bolt, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Connie. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN Certification, with information available at aacn.org forward slash credentials. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.